Packages by Expedia. You were made to be rechargeable. We were made to package flights, hotels, and hammocks for less. Expedia. Made to travel. Hi, this is Pod Save the UK. I'm Nish Kumar. And I'm Coco Khan. Have we accidentally fallen into some sort of time machine and wound our way back to Victorian times, Coco? What do you mean? Is it because of the... Oh, it's because of the crushing child poverty and the and the dumping of people in prison ships. Yeah, that's right. Plus, we talk about why Labour needs to sort his shit out ahead of a by-election Super Thursday. And the SNP's Mary Black will be here to tell us why she's had enough of Westminster. You've brought in plums for everybody today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're your plums. They're my plums from my tree. Yeah, it, I it's know. Uh, surprising, isn't it? I, I don't strike people as someone that bears fruit, but I do. <laughs> is that the way you're? Is that the way you're going to phrase it? Welcome to Pod Save the UK. Coco has borne fruit. <laughs> But it, like, it's amazing how quickly they come in and how many come in. So I have it, thousands of It doesn't surprise me because I know about your interest in gardening and, <laughs> you know, you're uh, interested in nature and gardening and all that you know kind what of I would crap say, that I couldn't care about. <laughs> now that I have thousands of plums, yeah. I'm obviously giving them out. Yeah, right. And I think that I am accruing within my neighbourhood power. What do you mean? What, well, are you some sort of plum-based mafia lord? Oh, babe, honestly, I'm there not... not Hi, yeah, it's me from next door. I just wanted to give you a, a punnet of plums from my tree. Guarantee you those people, next time your barbecue's ruining their washing, they're not going to say anything. This is how power is accrued. Soft plums, hard power. That's how this works. I can't believe you've become a sort of crime lord via the medium of plums in your local area. But I thought you were doing this as something nice. You've given me a punnet of plums today. Now I'm worried what favour you're going to ask me in a year's time. You're going to ask me to kill a man. Over Maybe. some plums you gave me. <laughs> well, look, no, but genuinely, I gave them to you because you're my friend and you deserve them. But everybody else, <laughs> it is a ploy. This is absolutely staggering news for our production team who yeah, just thought yeah. they'd enjoyed some straight, some, some consequence-free plums. <laughs> but now it turns out you've accrued a small private militia. Oh, great. Well, we talked about the uh, hot dog to militia pipeline. Yeah, sure. And yeah, here yeah. we go. Pod Save the UK exclusive, plums to warlord. It's coming. You heard it here first. You cannot say in two years the signs weren't there. You're the only person who read the story about the Wagner group in Russia and thought, right, this is an example to emulate. This is an example to emulate and I'll do it via plums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So while Europe is quite literally on fire, uh, the UK has turned the clock back to Victorian times with child poverty and prison ships, hot topics of conversation. This week sees the government's illegal migration bill, which is central to Rishi Sunak's plan to stop the boats, successfully complete its journey through Parliament into the statute books. So the UN's refugee agency has outright condemned this. It said the bill is in breach of international law. So if you're listening... The ghost of Christmas future while we're on this Victorian tip, right? Yeah. I think Rishi Sunak needs visiting. <laughs> Rishi Sunak has got his unbelievable brown Scrooge vibes. <laughs> Rishi Sunak is Bruges through and through. Just on the subject of Victorian England, I've been thinking about this today. What job would you like? If we're going back to Victorian England, I'm going to go for button collector. Coco, <laughs> if we're going back to Victorian England... You and I are only going to have jobs making gin and tonics for the Maharaja <laughs> and fanning them with palm leaves while oh, they really? sit on a veranda in Delhi. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> we'll go back to Victorian times. You and I are going to be back in it's India. It's going to be very, very, very bad. It's going to be very bad. That's, that, that's the one thing. That that's the one thing we don't want to do. <laughs> That's literally the one thing we don't want to do. As much as we complain about the present, we have no interest in going any further back. Anyway, um, meanwhile, the most visible symbol of the government's policy is a hulking great barge. It's called the Bibby Stockholm and it arrived in position of the Dorset coast. Uh, it's ready to receive the first batch of asylum seekers within the next couple of weeks. I know that Nish and I once made a joke that said, 
to, to cure the small boats crisis, you need a bigger boat. But we were joking. Yeah, Someone we were joking. heard that. <laughs> we just like the film Jaws and we like the line, we're going to need a bigger boat. We didn't anticipate it manifesting itself as a government policy that's led to us being condemned by the UN. Yes, that's not the Spielberg ending we wanted. Yeah, it's a 222 bedroom vessel and it contains what's described as basic accommodation uh, with healthcare provision, catering facilities and 24-7 security at a reported cost of £20,000 a day. Uh, it was used previously uh, by Germany and the Netherlands where it was criticised as an oppressive environment. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it's I, I, I think it's pretty consistent with this government's policy yeah. of there isn't any money for anything except racism. Yeah. For which there is a ceaseless store of money. Yeah, what, yeah, whatever yeah. happens, we will find the f- the cash to finance your small minded prejudice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's again, like, and I know, I know to a certain extent, it's a waste of time trying to find the logic because the point is the cruelty. That is the point. But what they're float, they're floating on water. How are these people going to come and go? Like, apparently, there'll be transport put onto them. They've got curfews or, you know, not formal curfews, but they're encouraged to be back at a certain time. I just don't understand the logistics of it. It doesn't seem very cost effective. Um, The Independent has run a big story about how uh, an Australian travel firm who'd previously been slammed for its handling of COVID quarantine hotels has actually been handed a £1.6 billion contract uh, covering these new asylum ships. And there is opacity over the process that led to this contract being awarded. Well, you know, but we are a show of hope and optimism. And on that note, we do have to uh, doff our caps to port authorities in Liverpool and Edinburgh, who just simply refused. You're not bringing your ship here, mate. And that forced the government to abandon the plan in those areas. So Once again, Liverpool and Scotland. <laughs> Once again, Liverpool and Scotland delivers in terms of being parts of the United Kingdom that are desperately holding on to the concept of basic decency. But we can't blame everything on the Tories, though. Labour leader Keir Starmer is making a bid for our Villain of the Week slot. He was renamed Sir Kid Starver over his refusal to remove a two-child cap on some benefits. The good news is there are three by-elections to look forward to and Rishi Sunak could become the first Prime Minister since Harold Wilson in 1968 to lose three seats on the same day. A hat-trick we would like to see. And two years later... Wilson lost a general election. So, you know, there are precedents being set. Great. Um, So, look, the big question this week is, what's going on with Labour? Uh, If Marcus Rashford has taught us anything, it's that it's not a good look to be seen to be taking the food out of mouths of hungry kids. And yet at the start of the week, Keir Starmer kicked off a storm within Labour ranks when he told the BBC's Laura Koonsberg that he wouldn't abolish a two-child limit on claiming some benefits. If you have more than two children at the moment, you don't get benefits. Would that change under a Labour government? We're not changing that policy. You're not changing the two benefit, child, two child policy benefits. Okay, housing benefits. Okay, he didn't give a reason during the interview, but the next day members of his shadow cabinet said it was because this would constitute an unfunded spending commitment. Now, just to be clear, this isn't about child benefit itself, which has no limit to the number you can claim for. This is about the cap that restricts child tax credit and universal credit to the first two children in a family, which is supposed to encourage parents back into work. So the Child Poverty Action Group estimates that removing the limit, which was brought in by George Osborne, you would think that that would tell you enough about how good this policy actually is, but there we go. The man who puts the George Osborne into the phrase, please don't put the words George Osborne and email into Twitter. (laughs) But anyway, the, the estimates of the Child Poverty Action Group said that removing this limit would lift a quarter of a million children out of poverty overnight. They would just not have to worry about what they're eating and about going to school and their clothes having holes. And that just seems a bit of a no-brainer. Lots of Keir Starmer's own colleagues have criticised the cap in the past. Just last month, Shadow Work and Pension Secretary Jonathan Ashworth said this is one of the well single most heinous elements of the system, which is pushing children and families into poverty today. Yeah, in 2020, Angela Rayner said that it was obscene and inhumane um, and that it it had to go. But speaking to former Prime Minister and recent supervillain Tony Blair, (laughs) the haircut, it looked like he was trying to look like someone from 
an 80s action film. It, it really looked like he was like holding John McClane hostage or something. But anyway, uh, speaking to Blair at an event yesterday, Starmer acknowledged that there was a row going on within the party about making tough choices. Tough choices. That, that lovely phrase said by people for whom the choice does not affect them. Let's have a listen. We keep saying collectively as a party, we've got to take tough decisions. And in the abstract, everyone says, that's right, Kia. <laughs> And then we get a tough decision. We've been in one of those for the last few days. They well, don't like that. Can we just not make that one? Um, I'm sure there's another tough decision somewhere else that we could make. Um, but we have to take the tough decisions. And this isn't, you know, this isn't some sort of reflection on some focus group that says, you know, we'd like Labour to um, have an economic straitjacket on. It's the fundamentals. Liz Truss was very different um, to others. She proved the thesis that if you make unfunded uh, commitments, uh, then the economy um, is damaged and working people pay the price. It's uh, not been an ideal week, given that we're going into these three pretty significant by-elections, uh, for Sir Kid Starver to be trending on social wow. media and to be used by a, a couple of different news presenters. Um, it, I, listen, I wonder if you could explain to me the logic behind this. Because look, this will uh, cost £1.3 billion a year. But as you say, it, Child Poverty Action Group estimates that it would lift a quarter of a million children out of poverty literally overnight. Mm. You know, it, it is, I don't really understand the logic of not r- uh, removing this cap. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I had the same thing as you and I've been racking my brains about it. And this is my theory. My theory is... They know full well, the leadership knows full well, it doesn't actually make sense to have this cap. I mean, I was right. reading an um, op-ed by Starmer recently where he was talking about early intervention and how when he was working as director of public prosecutions, he saw, you know, up front that actually if you intervene in these troubled children's lives, it prevents them from entering a world of crime. I mean, taking them out of poverty would probably do the same. Yeah. Taking them out of poverty would also help lower the bill on the NHS with all you know health problems that may arise from it, let alone education outcomes, crime outcomes, all of that sort of stuff. He knows that. I think he knows it. So this is my theory, and it's just my theory. I think he said it knowing that he will U-turn. and right. But it's just to posture to those swing voters who seemingly are the only people that matter and saying to them, look, I am tough and I also am willing to play fast and loose with uh, ultimately quite old stereotypes around like strivers and skivers and all those images it conjures up of single parent mums and their five kids from different blokes or immigrants with their 25 children. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, right. I, think, I think this is a, a political strategy, which is gross um, and not the politics that I want. You know, I'm sure somebody will say, well, this is you two just being uh, naive you don't understand this is how real politics work. I mean, I don't know. Are there that many voters that are thinking, good, more <laughs> children in poverty? That's a cross next to the <laughs> Labour Party for me. I, 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 I'm struggling to wrap my mind around that. It was interesting for me seeing Starmer and Blair together there because, you know, in some respects, what Starmer's doing here is playing with old tropes that probably Blair would have used. You know, again, strivers versus skivers and all these kind of, you know, people who are milking the system. But poverty now has changed. There are loads of people in poverty. There are middle class families who are struggling, who will be affected by things like this. You know, we're not talking about a a small population that can be demonised for political expedience, which was morally wrong anyway. But regardless, I mean, there's loads and loads of people who are really feeling the pinch. And I think they need to sort out their line on poverty because this this is not really good enough. The thing that really sticks in my throat about this is that we're constantly told that tough decisions have to be taken. Starmer used that phrase again and again and again. Tough decisions have to be taken. Tough decisions have to be taken. Tough decisions have to be taken. And tough decisions do have to be taken. But what annoys me is that those tough decisions always involve cutting spending on welfare, cutting spending on state services. Now, that's always going to disproportionately affect poorer people. We never, ever talk about tough decisions in terms of doing things like placing a tax on extreme wealth. The Labour government, the last Labour government, did take a very tough decision in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. They introduced a 50p rate of tax because they desperately knew that we needed to inject money into the economy because of the sheer size of the banking bailout and the hole that it blew in our public finances. And I'm just frustrated 
that after 13 years that starts with Cameron and Osborne telling us that tough decisions have to be taken, we're still accepting that paradigm that the only tough decisions that can possibly be taken are ones that punish the poorest people and don't do things like tax extreme wealth, uh, increased corporation tax. Cameron Osborne, whilst they were saying that tough decisions needed to be taken in terms of cutting public spending, were also lowering corporation tax. We have a system of capital gains tax where it's taxed at a lower rate than income right? Passive pots of money that are sat there are taxed at lower rates than income that people work for, it, which seems absolutely perverse to me. And they're always talking about tough decisions, but they're never talking about tough decisions that might negatively affect incredibly wealthy people. And I am aware that people might say that that's naive, but I also think maybe that's the most realist position given what's happened in the last 13 years. 13 years of underinvestment. Real wages for people living in this country have not returned to their pre-2008 levels. Something has to change. We can't keep talking about tough decisions and only talking about cutting spending. The, the, what Starmer is proposing is a 2010 solution to a 2023 problem. And in 2010, that solution didn't fucking work anyway. So coming up next, we'll be talking to Mary Black, Deputy Leader of the SNP in Westminster. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, Hotels.com here. Struggling to keep up with your toddler? We know a hotel that'll keep them entertained. Book family-friendly hotels with pools in the Hotels.com app to find your perfect somewhere. Our special guest this week is Mary Black, Scottish National Party MP for Paisley and Renfrewshire South and Deputy Leader of the SNP in Westminster. She was famously elected to Parliament in 2015 at the young age of 20 while still a student at Glasgow University. It made her the youngest MP since 1832. After eight years in the job, though, she's had enough. She's calling it quits at the next election. Welcome. Hello. Do we get your name right? You did indeed. <laughs> it's the first time anyone's ever got it right. <laughs> Yes, accomplishment. I, I, I do try and make an effort to find out the specific pronunciation only because I had, you know, people used to call me Nish. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's, my name is like, uh, it's literally just fish with an N. Like, yeah, I've yeah. never right. understood how so people I've, get So right. I always tell people, you pronounce my name as though you're proposing to me. Like, will you marry oh. me? Marry. And they're like, ah, oh, will you marry me? Marry. <laughs> Have you ever asked anyone to marry you? Like, what? So, I don't know. It depends I, how pissed up they I are. I just accept it. it. Yeah. It's funny with the name thing, because obviously we're people of colour, so it happens to us all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's Coco, C-O-C-O, -O, and then Khan, K-H-A-N. Mm -hmm. And I have received emails that are Cock Khan. Wow. <laughs> See, because I think you've got a superhero name. Oh, really? Like, Coco Khan. Like, Go That's get none. Coco. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's a very, no nonsense. It's very popular with small dogs. What, Coco? <laughs> oh my God, I can't go to any park. If I go to any park, there's always someone there. Coco, Coco. My ears are up. I can't even relax. It's terrible. Your ears or the dog's ears? Yeah, yeah. Both, both, both. both there. I don't think we've ever heard that. I don't think I've ever heard that that was a problem for it's you. It's a big problem for me, yeah. That's why you never invite me to a picnic. I will not come. Because, of the, because all the dogs. It's also why she never takes treats. <laughs> She's not sure if they're edible for humans or not. Just... I do love a belly rub. Though. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Mary, you've joined. You've come over straight from PMQs. How I was have. it? Yeah, this is yes. a big. This is the first for us. We've not had a politician come straight from PMQs to the studio. It's it's a welcome change how, <laughs> to, to come here. <laughs> how, how was it? It, the only way I can describe PMQs is its usual shit show self. It's <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. you know, it's a pantomime. Are you like somebody now, essentially, that's 
handed in their notice but has to serve it out and so it's just sat there every yeah, day yeah, just yeah. flipping the double bird just at all of their co-workers just blasting rage against the machine walks through the corridors yeah do you know what can I ask you because I've genuinely mm-hmm. always wanted to know what does it smell like in there <laughs> so B.O. normally is the, the over surely not B.O. well the thing is see because the temperature can't really be regulated in the building. Right. right and particularly right. when it's during summer and stuff and the dress code is very strict. Well, particularly for men, and it's mostly men that are in the place. Yeah, right. It can get... I mean, it's not their fault a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it contributes to a lot of the the mustiness. No, but these are, these are adult men. These are, like, I when it's a group of teenage boys yeah. and they get on, like, a train and uh-huh. they absolutely stink, you just think, God bless them, they're still yeah. learning, their bodies are changing. But yeah, yeah. to be fair, though, because, like, even this week and last week, we've had, a, like, a lot of votes. So I think there was yeah. one day where we had 15 votes, but because of the voting system, you're mm. just walking around right, the corridors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that adds up, excuse me, to maybe about four hours, four and a half hours where everybody's cramped in together, so you don't really get the chance to have a wee... Right, right, right. <laughs> you know what right, I mean? Right. It's like you're just constantly should going we just, around. Like, should we start a new... Is this your leaving gig for the House of Commons? Is you're just going to, like, set up a dove roll-on stand? I, I, that's, that's what I'm planning to go into next, is the deodorant I mean, market. Would you like no. a plum? Uh, no, I'm okay. Uh, you don't have to eat it now, but do take a plum home with you. Coco's grown them on her tree. Yeah, yeah, they're organic, obviously, because I don't Excellent. know how to do anything. Thank else. you. Yeah. I won't I should, eat it now, but don't eat it now. And I should also just warn you that um, I this is a power play. What I'm doing right now. <laughs> Does it work? I don't know. We shall find out. Right, okay. In five years' time, you're going to get a letter from Coco Khan asking you to kill someone who owns a dog called Coco. <laughs> And because the of that plum, plum I gave you, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Can we go back to the political interview? Sorry, here? Yeah. sorry. Because you're you're leaving now, so you get yeah. to do that thing that so many politicians can't, which is be honest. See, well, I feel like I've always been honest. I mean, that's kind of one of the things that has perplexed me about this job is how people will twist themselves in knots mm. to, you know, to try and not answer a question, whereas I just think answer it you yeah. know it's at least folk will appreciate that you've been upfront about things I mean there's maybe there's times where I might tone down the language that I use <laughs> you know like I, I would maybe be a bit more ruthless if I was just talking to you in a pub <laughs> um, but no that it's one thing that I'm actually quite proud of is everything like I've never had to or even been asked to say anything that I don't believe in um, which is uh, seemingly quite a rarity yeah, yeah, <laughs> in yeah. politics. I do find it mad that you joined politics mm-hmm. at 20. When I was 20, oh God. I mean, I, I didn't have my head on straight and mm-hmm. I think I was too busy. <sighs> go on. Let's not go into it. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Coco Khan at university, the university years. <laughs> it's all a blur. Let's just say that. I don't Fair really on. fully remember. Yep. It's redacted. Um, but, you know, at that age, you decided to enter the world of musty chambers. Yeah. What, why? So it was very much because of the independence referendum. So when it was announced in 2011, 2012, I think, I remember me and my dad thinking, if there's one time to get involved in doing things, it's now. Um, so me and him were out campaigning. I mean, we were we knocked our pans in. It was five, six nights a week for about two years. We were out just knocking on doors and talking to people, holding street stalls, going to town hall meetings. So there was a real politicisation in Scotland, you know, and uh, a real political education happening. So, of course, we lost the referendum and after, you know, about two days of mourning, <laughs> um, finally, the the overwhelming feeling was, I haven't put in all of this energy just to be told to go back into my box and just get over it. And we were fortunate in the fact that the general election came about six months after we lost the referendum. So there was still a bit of momentum, but it was sort of a quick time frame, mm. um, certainly in electoral terms. And I was just determined to, right, let's keep going. Let's hold them to account, make sure that they deliver on all these magical promises that they made. Um, and as time went on, more and more people, particularly within my own branch, were saying to me, 
you should go for it. And my initial response was, I'm 20, don't be stupid, <laughs> that's mental. But the more they argued it with me, I was like, oh God, they're winning. Like, I, I don't have a good argument for why I shouldn't, purely because of my age. Um, so I decided to put my hat in the ring and see see how far I get. <laughs> and here I am. Did you come from quite a political family? Because, I mean, it's... I, I understand that the announcement that there's going to be a referendum on, on independence yeah. must have engaged a lot of people, but it still feels like if that's something you and your dad yeah. were doing, is that something that you talked about a lot at home? Well, in hindsight, we were a political household in the sense that we always talked about things. Yeah. Um, and, like, my dad always made us argue with him. Like, I remember one day when I was, like, 10 or something, people, I hate Thatcher. And I'm going, why? Eh... Uh, Everybody hates Thatcher. No, but you can't just hate people. What? No, argue. And like my dad's totally anti-Thatcher, right? <laughs> but he, he, that was him. He was trying to get us to engage our brains a bit and mm. actually come up with arguments. Because um, it's, it's funny how I, I wasn't, it, was, it wasn't until I was in university that I first heard the phrase, oh, you don't talk about politics and religion. Because I'm like, that's all we talk about. Yeah. <laughs> like, but we weren't political in the sense of, you know, being party members or going out actively campaigning or knocking on doors. So we were political in our conversations, but not politically active, if that makes sense. I want to just briefly take you back to uh, 14th of July, 2015, your maiden speech to the House of Commons. We're going to watch a clip of it now. I, it, it's... I'm. I, I'm absolutely fascinated by this because I think if someone showed me a clip when I was tw of me when I was 20, I would spontaneously combust through <laughs> sheer shame. So let's see how you get on. This I'm is looking a clip at your my roots speech. there. And God, I've got more roots than a tree. God. But yes, uh, as we will. <laughs> yes, we will have political differences. Yes, in other parliaments, we may be opposing parties, but within this chamber, we are not. No matter how much I may wish it, the SNP is not the sole opposition to this government, but nor is the Labour Party. It is together with all the parties on these benches that we must form an opposition. And in order to be effective, we must oppose, not abstain. So I reach out a genuine hand of friendship, which I can only hope will be taken. Let us come together. Let us be that opposition. Let us be that signpost of a better society. Ultimately, People are needing a voice. People are needing help. Let's give them it. So you're talking to the Labour Party there. Yeah. And obviously we're approaching an election. So if Labour were for... Let's just imagine they don't get their majority. Mm -hmm. SNP up for a coalition. SNP have always said that we'll work, particularly to keep any Conservative government out. But it's actually... It's quite sad listening to that again because... That hand of friendship has been scalped away so many times. Yeah. There is no, there has always been total resistance from certainly the, the Labour leadership to have anything to do with the SNP. And it's not for any, any sort of political basis or on the basis of a policy or anything. Mm. It's purely because they don't like the SNP. And a, a large bit of it, particularly in 2015, was a sense of entitlement. Mm. It was, uh, you know, you took our seats yeah. and it's, well, they were never yours. Like it's, yeah. that, that just kind of taps into, again, this taking Scotland for granted. That person there on the screen was full of hope. Mm -hmm. Is this person here in our studio full of hope still? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, uh, people think of politics as either being this really complex thing that you have to study and you have to you know live and breathe it to understand mm. it and that's a myth politics is everywhere that you look it's your wages it's the price of food it's your house it's what jobs are available it's the opportunities for your kids it's everything and I think the more that we can get across to people look life doesn't have to be like this these are all choices that are made and they're made by people in power and let's start looking closer at those people in power to make sure that they're making the right decisions um because it was funny just when I, when I was coming in there I could hear the the two of you talking previously and when you were you put the hammer on the nail head when you were saying how it's it's funny how 
we talk about these tough decisions, but the tough decisions always seem to be at the expense of the people who can't afford it or the people who have suffered mm. disproportionately. Why is it that we never have difficult decisions that millionaires won't like or billionaires won't like? Because surely that's yeah. <laughs> a, a better place to be targeting any difficult decisions to make. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, I'm still absolutely full of hope the world doesn't change unless people make it happen. That's all politics is, is people in rooms making decisions. It's just about trying to get the right people into the rooms and urge them to make the right decisions. So then... I mean, why are you leaving? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Look, when no, I, totally, totally. When I see that speech and yeah. when I sit across a table from you yeah. and I see how animated you are mm-hmm. and I see you as a conviction politician mm-hmm. and we always talk as an electorate about how we want more politicians that aren't careerists but are conviction politicians yeah. and we want people who believe in something. It then seems to me to be a great loss that you're leaving. Yeah. And I, why, yeah. what, what's, what's happened? So, it's, it's not a political decision, me stepping back. It's, it's a personal one as a human being. Yeah. Just in the sense that I, I've never made a secret about how, my, how I feel about Westminster, not just as a political system and how it's set up, but having worked on it for almost a decade I also don't enjoy it. I think right. it's a horrible place to be. Um, and, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I quoted Tony Benn in my maiden speech and I find myself leaving, quoting Tony Benn again, saying, you know, leaving politics to do more politics. That's mm. um, Because Westminster isn't the only place where change can happen. Um, it's it, more often than not, if you want real change to happen in Westminster, the pressure has to come from outside rather than inside. Um, so I do I absolutely still believe in everything that is you know that I'm saying and that I think the SNP particularly in Westminster are doing but as a human I'm also conscious that I want to have a life yeah and there's the added aspect of what my loved ones have been through yeah is Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, talk us through some of that bomb threats and death threats. Oh, yeah, all the time. It's hard for me as just a regular person who has never stepped foot in Westminster to sort of fathom, like, like the scale of the toxicity. Perhaps you could share with our our listeners. Oh, yeah, no, it's... God, where to start? (laughs) It's... Certainly with my loved ones, the, the impact it has on them is from worrying about my life and my health and safety all the way down to things as frivolous as not being able to go on a night out without somebody trying to chew my ear off about their granny's hedges or you know something like that (laughs) and of course although it's maybe the 15th time it's happened to me that night it's the first time they're bringing it up so you have to remain calm and patient and listen to folk but it starts to take its toll, you know. So it, it it ranges from really frivolous stuff to really heavy stuff. Um, but within the building itself, it's just a disproportionate amount of bullies and sociopaths in the one building, which is also falling apart. <laughs> you know, there's just danger around every corner. It can Wait, be quite. So you a... mean like the the sort of crumbling state of the buildings? Yep. Is that starting to become like? Does it feel like a sort of metaphor for the whole I, institution? I have been walking through Westminster and bits of concrete have come crashing down. Oh and my it's God. Like, oh, wow. You know, there's mice running about the building. Mm. You're in the cafeteria and you can see the mice scurrying about. And you think, this is the place that makes health and safety laws. Yeah. But it can't even abide by them. It's just, it's nuts. But You're so wait, nuts. bullies and sociopaths. Yeah. Like, is, it's I my mean, new book. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give us an example, basically? Because I'm still trying to figure out how can someone in a different party bully you? I mean, it can range from good old-fashioned intimidation, whether that's physical or emotional intimidation. Oh, my God, people physically intimidate you? What? I mean, not so much with me because I've been very vocal and loud and don't mind, you know, calling things out. But I appreciate not everybody has that element to their personality but it also a big part of it is potluck you know because I'm conscious that when I say 
a lot of the time this stuff hasn't happened maybe directly to me. I think a large part of that is because of my personality and how I carry myself. But that implies that then people who have been bullied haven't carried themselves right, and that's yeah. not the case at all. Um, so that it can range from like that, just intimidation. It can range from uh, deliberately being left out of decisions or, oh, you know, being stepped over right the way through to, you know, f- briefing against your colleagues in the press or whatever. Or uh, I've seen folk being physically dragged into lobbies. I've seen folk crying multiple times in corridors. Um, but also as well, I- I've s- I've stepped in a few times where MPs have been speaking completely unacceptably to staff in a certain way mm. and the staff have to take it because you're the MP and I just think that's disgraceful. And that's like a specifically the Conservative Party approach or that is in Labour, in the SNP even? No, I would say there's elements of it in in every party. I mean, it ranges, it mm. does range um, and I think the the entitlement if I had to say, I, I, I've probably seen it more with the more right-wing conservative uh, side of things. But such, the way that the place is designed, it's a world unto itself. Mm. And I I can empathise with how it warps people's perceptions and that sometimes, you know, folk will do or say something and you think, you would never have done that five or six years ago but it's this kind of almost indoctrination because you're constantly in there and what's considered normal in parliament is totally different than what's considered normal in the outside world I or mean, in any other world on your point like when you, you were saying they're like oh you know being left out of decisions yeah. which obviously yeah of course in any setting would be um, terrible and, and a form of bullying and undermining people but also you what someone voted for you how can mm. they that's not fair like it's not fair for the people that gave you their vote to mm-hmm. represent them for, that they they prohibit you from doing that. Yeah. That's like not democracy. I'm angry. I'm furious. <laughs> Who is it? Who is it? I'll find them. I'll set all the cocoa dogs on them. <laughs> well, you see, because it also, I, I, I can't remember who it was, but there was an MP who said that if you're not a millionaire within your first five years of being an MP, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> wow. And I am just about to say, I don't have enough money to fund the lawyers that would be required <laughs> if I started naming names. So I've clearly been doing it wrong <laughs> for the last eight years. <laughs> well, but we, I mean, we we know an MP salary. We yes. know yep. what you're. We have to know what you're earning. We know what the prime minister earns. Yep. Ha- I mean, I know how? it's. I, I can only imagine it's through you know like sitting on boards sitting and making boards, connections right? yeah. and you know maybe if you're in the right WhatsApp group you know <laughs> you, you might get a billion dollar contract well, I'm conscious that we don't want to take up your entire no. afternoon so we should definitely ask you about where the SNP is yes. at the moment yes. it's been a tough year dramatic for the party. yeah yes. a traumatic year what's I mean are, are you concerned that people are going to think you're stepping down because of the problems that have happened with the SNP and you're just like, fuck this whole thing. I'm out, see you later. It's funny because um, I keep having to reassure people there will not be a tent outside my house. <laughs> like, I promise you, it's not happening. <laughs> no, genuinely, that's... We just, just to briefly explain, there was a police tent outside Nicola Sturgeon's house as part yes. of the uh, ongoing investigation into SNP finances. Um, so that, but yeah, so there's no... Well, we know there's no tent because yes. you're not a millionaire. <laughs> yes, if, you yes, were a mi- if you were sat here with a, a gold chain and a mink coat, we'd be like, TikTok, TikTok, the, the tent's coming. Yeah. No, it, it, I, I understand that there will be a lot of people who won't believe me no matter what I say. Yeah. But genuinely, I it was election night 2019. I first thought, I'm not doing this again. Really? Because yeah. it's, it's such a... A tiring process. Uh, I mean, it's worth it, but it starts to take its toll on on you. Are you worried that all of this is going to impact the independence movement, though? It can't be great. No, I'm genuinely not. And the reason I say that is, well, for two reasons. The first one being that even when support for the SNP fluctuates, support for independence is rock solid. Mm. It's going nowhere. So that's the first thing. But the second 
point I would say is that independence is so much bigger than any one person or any one political party even. It's to me it's it's a logical movement. It's a case of uh, it's a democratic movement. It's about wanting better accountability, wanting better, you know, people power over decisions that affect your life, getting governments you vote for and stuff. Um, and that's th those arguments have stood the test of time and will continue to stand the test of time so long as Westminster keeps acting as it is. Um, so genuinely, I don't. I, I think. But so you're not worried about going anywhere if because I mean. I, the sort of, I'm sort of always wary as somebody who lives in England commenting about Scottish independence, but there is always a part of me that's felt, you know, Scotland voted to remain part of the United Kingdom, but then the schism of Brexit changed the material conditions of what being in the United Kingdom is. So I find it sometimes when progressive English people get frustrated about Scottish demands for a second referendum, I always find myself saying, but you changed the whole yeah. game of what being in the you United Kingdom. You moved the goalposts completely. <laughs> like, I've been in those same pubs as you. Yeah. <laughs> and I know exactly the, the sort of thought process. And it is like, we cannot possibly lose Scotland. We cannot lose them. <laughs> yeah. They're one of us and they're more left wing and we need them when we need... And if we just get Labour in, maybe we can a, a bit that, like... So we you can sort of seduce the them again. Uh -huh. We can seduce them back. Like renewing your vows. Yeah. I'm sorry, baby. I'm sorry <laughs> for me what back. I did. Take, Take me, me back. back. Yeah. 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 Are you concerned that if there's a Labour government that might affect because the Conservative Party and especially with the broken promises made by the Conservative Party to Scotland after the referendum has well, been such a kind of fuel for Actually, the I would say Labour have their fingerprints over those broken promises yeah. as well because it was better together. It was yeah. Tories and Labour sharing a platform telling Scotland that we can't survive as an independent country, that we would be out of Europe, that we would, you know, it would be such a loss. We have to stay and lead the UK, not leave the UK. And the minute that that side won the vote, it was like, right, okay, right back. I mean, yeah. we don't need to think about you again. And next thing you know, this idea of full fiscal autonomy disappears. Yeah. This idea of as close to federalism as possible disappears this vow that we would get all of these powers it's nonsense absolute nonsense and in actual fact what they've spent the last five six years doing is everything they possibly can to undermine devolution not just for scotland that's wales and northern ireland as well and labor are the ones that have either sat on their hands and let it happen or have actively been in the lobbies with conservatives and that's something that it, it, to me is unjustifiable but it's funny when because I've heard this argument a lot from particularly progressives in England that you know we, we need Scotland well that argument doesn't hold in actual fact if Scotland became independent and went in the direction that I hope it would what I think would happen is it would actually spur on the progressives in England to go well wait a minute we've been told for years that we are subsidising them. How is it that Scotland's able to have free prescriptions and free tuition? How come they're able to provide support for more than two children at a time? How come they're able to do all these things? Why can't we do that? Wait a minute. And suddenly, I think that would potentially ignite that sort of same political education within England about demanding better rather than just letting particularly the southeast dictate mm -hmm. the political landscape of the whole of the UK. We don't know what's going to happen with the SNP case. It's rumbling on. Will you still be involved with the party in some capacity? I imagine so, yeah. yeah. Like particularly with the general election, not just not just because I, I believe that SNP's particularly in Westminster are best placed to represent people in Scotland, but also on a more personal level because a lot of these folk are my colleagues and I want to still be part of it. And just because I, like any normal person, want to move on into a different role, particularly if I'm not enjoying my current mm -hmm. job, it doesn't mean I stop believing in it or I stop campaigning or I stop um, being involved in things. That's absolutely not the case. I'll be honest, you know, there's been periods in my life where 
I wasn't sure if like left wing politics are in, endemic in the SNP. Mm-hmm. You know, at one point they yeah. were the Tartan Tories, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but yeah. it is. As, am I right in thinking that it is, or it could change? Or? Yeah, no. Well, that's uh, well, I wouldn't be a member if it, <laughs> if it wasn't <laughs> yeah. the case. Um, I think where this is actually quite interesting as well. How I've always said that the political parties that have the most to gain from Scottish independence are Labour and Conservatives, because the SNP has become prominent for two reasons. One being that they've embraced progressive policies, um, arguably more so than the other mainstream parties in the UK. But it's also because um, they've... It's the best electoral vehicle to achieve independence or at least to uh, sort of get across the level of support for it. If Scotland becomes independent, I've always said the day after independence, my vote's up for grabs because that's the way it should be. The SNP, to an extent, has served its purpose and I imagine would disband probably after a a certain period of time. Mm. Whereas Scottish Labour suddenly have the freedom to actually make policies tailored to Scotland rather than doing what we've seen this week, which is Keir Starmer coming out and saying, we support the the, the rape clause in Anna Sarwar in Scotland going, shit, right. Uh, yeah, we support it too. You know, no, he doesn't, but he's having to say that because his boss in London has set the, the tone and he has to fall in line. So it would give Scottish Labour the freedom to actually be what, people in Scotland expect the Labour Party to be, but also Conservatives, they would be able to sever that kind of toxic Thatcherite link and and those memories because I have no doubt that there are Conservative people in Scotland, you know, and it would allow the Conservative Party to rebrand or, you know, try and galvanise their support. So I, I truly don't see downsides to, to independence uh, and I wish other parties would start to view it the same um, because it's not like there's suddenly going to be a steel Berlin wall between the, the two nations It's that's a fanciful idea it's just if anything that the two nations will actually be talking to each other as equals as opposed to the current setup that we have Briefly, we should just contextualise that the rape clause is the clause that blocks parents claiming universal credit of child tax credit for more than two children unless they can show that any additional child was conceived through rape, which is... Horrific. It, it's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. Barbaric. Not just morally, but even from from a realistic point of view, because I understand that the thing that frustrates me most, particularly about Tory policy, is that if you just say it as a sentence, it seems almost sensible and logical. Mm but then not apply it to real life. Yeah. So say you're in a really well-paying job or your husband is in a really well-paying job and he deserts you or he dies and you've had three kids. Uh, well, yeah, no, the third wasn't conceived through rape, but how am I meant to pay for... Yeah. Uh, do you know what I mean? It's Real life doesn't work like that. Mm. It, it's a lot more nuanced. So, yeah, it's, it's a cruel policy that I think um, both parties so should be Mary, ashamed of. I'm afraid... We have to let you go. We've taken up to your time. No, we. I just want to quickly oh, ask, okay. like, two, yeah, just on. two things. One is just when someone your age, I think, like, retires, in inverted commas, <laughs> yeah. I think, and I certainly know this is for me, you know, there's always an assumption. It's like when Daniel Day-Lewis retired from acting the first time. <laughs> yeah. There's always an assumption that, okay, you're retiring. We'll, we'll see you in 10 years. Yeah. Is, the, this, is that sort of in the back of your mind? You, you wouldn't rule out a return to politics. Yeah, I, I'm not ruling anything out at all. Like, I, I'm being also very honest when I say to folk, I have not got a scooby what I'm going to do next. Really? I don't have a clue. I, it's, I keep, my mum keeps saying to me, this is either the best or the worst decision of your life. <laughs> <laughs> Time will tell which it is. Um, it's nice to know that MPs' mums still speak to them like everyone else's mums. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they regularly tell me I mean, they're sick pr- of the sight of my face. You're, you're pretty beloved. <laughs> like if you wanted to come back, you could come back. You're not going out in shame. Do you know what I mean? Well, according to my Twitter feed, <laughs> I would dispute that. Uh, no, I, I genuinely have, like I say, I'm not ruling anything out, but I equally am not committing myself to anything at all. But um, okay, so you you don't you definitely don't know what you're doing next. But what are just three things 
that you're looking forward to as soon as you start being an MP? Uh, sleeping. More PlayStation time. And I should fling in my loved ones. More time with them as well. Right. We'll, we'll go with that. I just want end. to make clear for the record that the loved ones came after PlayStation. <laughs> they would expect nothing less. <laughs> they love me for me. <laughs> now we have to really say goodbye. No, thank, thank you very you much. Thank you so much for Barry, your thank time. You so thank, much. Much. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you. <laughs> The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, the House of Commons will be breaking up for a recess as it's summer holiday on Thursday. But when MPs gather in six weeks' time, there'll be three newbies in their midst uh, because we're recording this on the Wednesday. And tomorrow, the polls will open for three crucial by-elections in England that are widely being seen as a dry run for what could happen at the next general election. Just to be clear for our international listeners, of whom I'm told we're holding on to a bafflingly high number, (laughs) I sort of just assumed they'd be... On episode two, they'll be like, no, we're out. But apparently the train wreck of the United Kingdom (laughs) continues to be interesting to people outside of it as well as inside of it. But just for their benefit, uh, a by-election is what happens when a member of parliament uh, chooses or has to step down between uh, a general election. So there's three of those happening on Thursday. If this was the States, we'd probably be calling it Super Thursday but that does not seem on brand for the United Kingdom. And I think it's also hard to bandy the word super around when one of them is happening in a place called Froome, which doesn't (laughs) seem to lend itself to that level of democratic glamour. Oh, you just got yourself booted out of Froome for that (laughs) that comment. You're excited, I had a lovely time in Froome. I enjoyed performing at the Cheese and Grain. I had a lovely old time. But I'm just saying it's not... Hugely glamorous. (laughs) Okay, well, nonetheless, there are three seats up for grabs where three Tory MPs have quit. One because of lies, one because of drugs, and one because he didn't get a peerage. The B-side that we're all been waiting for, lies, drugs, peerage, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, By-election number one is happening in Uxbridge and Ryslip, the constituency that was once held by former Prime Minister Boris Johnson until he decided to step down. That was after the Commons Privileges Committee suspended him for lying to Parliament. The Labour Party is hoping to overturn his majority. That was more than 7,000. And if they do it, it would be a hugely symbolic victory. In Somerton and Froome, which I have remembered is actually more glamorous because it's near Glastonbury. So sometimes people do gigs there. So the Foo Fighters and Paul McCartney have recently gigged in Froome. I rescind all my comments about Froome. <laughs> it's the most glamorous place uh, in uh, in England. Uh, in Somerton and Froome in Somerset, the stage is set for the famous Lib Dem campaign machine to produce another by-election upset by overturning a Conservative majority of nearly 20,000. The former MP David Warburton resigned last month after allegations of harassment and drug use. Uh, He has admitted drug taking after being photographed next to a pile of cocaine, but he has denied any sexual misconduct. Um, And just for clarification, an independent panel found that the parliamentary investigation into him hadn't been carried out to a sufficient standard and has now been closed. 
uh, he admitted to drug taking after being photographed next to a pile of cocaine, <laughs> like what? Al Pacino in Scarface. <laughs> Um, and finally, the constituency of Selby and Ainsty in North Yorkshire. Uh, that seat's vacant after Conservative Nigel Adams, who was a Boris Johnson loyalist, should we say, uh, resigned a day after he was snubbed for a peerage. It would usually be considered a safe seat. Um, it was last time commanding a majority of over, over 20,000 votes. But even that is unlikely to be enough to save the Conservative Party from this ignominy of a hat trick. Of defeats. I mean, I don't think it needs saying on this podcast, but we would obviously encourage people to vote. But results of all three will be announced uh, on Friday. And if they do lose all three, it's likely to hugely pile pressure on Rishi Sunak in a week where his favourability rating has plummeted to minus 40, according to YouGov. Uh, that's his lowest level since becoming Prime Minister. Uh, and look out for us popping up in your feeds on Friday afternoon with a special bonus mini episode to chew over the results. So it's that time again. It's time to reveal our PSUK hero and villain of the week. Nish, you're playing good cop this time around. So who's your choice for hero? So my hero of the week goes to Fight the Tower, which is a campaign group in Brixton in South London who have scored a rare victory against the never-ending wave of gentrification that's erased much of the area's rich cultural history. It's a huge victory for community campaigning and resistance because local people have won a three-year battle to stop a Texan multimillionaire and get ready for this get ready for all your boners to soften and your vaginas to dry up this guy is a multimillionaire slash DJ <laughs> awful Awful, awful stuff. Uh, But this guy, Taylor McWilliams, uh, was planning on putting up a 20-storey office block called Hondo Tower in the heart of Brixton. Um, It's a campaign group that formed out of a campaign to save Noor, which is a kind of beloved local shop in the area, and then evolved into a kind of pushback against the building of this tower. It's testament to the tireless work of these people and a real example of a successful community protest to protect the character of an area. Um, And the protest has been so successful that Taylor McWilliams on Wednesday withdrew the planning application just a few days before City Hall was due to make the final decision on the project. It is everything that we want to Mm. celebrate in this show. It's a community action. It's doing something positive uh, within your local area. And it's a testament to the importance of protest and people power. Oh, absolutely. Such a heartwarming story and hopefully a lesson for all cities facing this uh, this situation of, of gentrification and just multimillionaires coming in, putting in buildings you don't like, pushing out uh, residents who've been there for a long time, destroying the character. Um, which is why, actually, my villain of the week is Conservative MP Simon Clark, because he also saw this story and his response was... gross shudder he tweeted this is how countries become steadily poorer that was it that's all he said he was trying to do some mic drop I mean what what is he talking about I just feel that like if there are (laughs) there is another way to bring wealth to your community without absolutely selling it down the river without destroying it without ripping out the heart of it yeah the man clearly knows nothing of Brixton and has no idea of what the impact of this was. But also, and I would just say this, Simon Clark was a very close ally of Liz Truss. He's not just any Tory MP, he's a Tory MP who's an enthusiastic supporter of Liz Truss. And I would say, if I had in any way been involved with Liz Truss's political career at all, I would shut the fuck up about how to make countries poorer. Although, actually... It's the one thing she fucking knew how to do. And so if I was Simon Clark, I would keep my opinions about making countries poorer to myself. Maybe he just meant that genuinely. <laughs> he's just tweeting things to help others impoverish their lands because he, he knows all about he, it. He's a man who clearly <laughs> knows nothing about anything except talking absolute shit. <laughs> Um, It's time for a quick uh, dip into the PSUK mailbag. Rosie Harvey Coggins has got in touch to say, I'm disappointed that we've got Rosie's real name and not some absurd online handle she's using. Uh, But Rosie Harvey Coggins has got in touch to say, I just want to tell you that episode 10 with the Just Stop Oil interview has inspired me to stand as chair of Litchfield City Council's new climate change and biodiversity committee. After all, climate change is a feminist issue. (laughs) 
That's great. And I think we're understanding why Rosie has given us their full name and not whatever (laughs) absurd YouTube handle that she's planning on using. Um, But that's really great. We're very happy to hear uh, people taking positive action. That's great news. That's gorgeous. Uh, and I've also got a bit of a telling off from at GSK Gregor, uh, who has said the ageism in our last episode was unnecessary, in particular, mocking Biden for having no cards. Uh, this is what they said. Given Biden is an octogenarian doing the hardest job in the world, I find it reassuring he's making an effort to account for his shortfalls by using an aid memoir to curb his tendency for gaffes and errors. Not everyone has Obama's intelligence and charisma, nor is progressive leadership restricted to the young. Sometimes wisdom, experience and a continued willingness to improve is a magic mix, even if it comes with a walking stick. Well, I I would say uh, I apologise for any offence that we caused with our remarks. In my defence, all I would say is I think one of the key things we were trying to get across and maybe we didn't do a good enough job is that he had to have note cards because he has to write down topics him and Rishi Sunak can safely talk about without violently disagreeing with each other. Uh, I thought the note cards was more uh, an indication of the level of divergence that exists between our prime minister and the American president. Um, but, um, you know, we're, everybody's... Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled when old white people do good things because sometimes <laughs> they do not. And so I am this very supportive. This apology is going to get another letter. <laughs> what? Why? <laughs> I want this message to go out to all old white people listening to this podcast. I think it's great that you're doing stuff to ameliorate for some of the other members of your community. Okay. Now, listen, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged Asian man. It's not like we don't have a... Middle-aged? You have... Got to drop this. You're not even forty. I know, this is but ridiculous I'm within. Now. I'm within the ballpark of our good for nothing dog shit prime minister. <laughs> so I'm also aware that my community is not covering itself <laughs> yeah. in glory. The the middle class British Indian Hindus are not exactly doing a great job. So you know, I'm aware. I'm trying to make up for some of the damage done for that asshole. Okay, well, I'm going to move this on because I feel that we're going to get into trouble with all ages, all demographics, and soon all ethnicities. Let's keep it moving. So in our, uh, yeah, we we do love an email from someone with a a bizarre handle and we've got another one from Archibald Cheesepants Third. Not to be confused with Archibald Cheesepants First or the Second. Um, And he emails with a question from a curious American. So they say, in a country with lordships and knighthoods, what kind of black magic do you have to work to become a shadow secretary and how long do you have to hide from the Church of England before they stop trying to burn you as a witch? Seriously though, asks Archibald, what is a shadow secretary? (laughs) It's what's amazing about doing this show and having people outside of the UK listen to it is that you forget how many strange, strange terms we sort of bandy around without really thinking about it. So uh, for clarification, uh, Mr. Cheesepants III, uh, whenever we say um, shadow secretary, and I do apologise for not explaining it more thoroughly, uh, what we mean is that's the person from the opposition party that is the sort of direct counterpoint. Um, So uh, probably the most prominent example is that uh, the Chancellor, uh, so that's from the Conservative Party, which is the ruling party, is Jeremy Hunt. And so there is a Labour equivalent to that. So there's an opposition MP from the opposition party who is whose main job is to oppose that specific person's policies. So Rachel Reeves is the shadow chancellor. So every single uh, person in the cabinet has a shadow version in the main party of opposition. Yeah, I think you explained that well. I was going to talk to... It's funny when you were explaining it, I was going to say to Archibald Cheesepants, you know, it's like netball when you mark each other. And I'm like, this man's not going to know what netball is. <laughs> Why are you what? confusing it further? <laughs> what is netball? It's like basketball, but you can't move. You have to throw backwards. You wear a skirt. It's confusing. <laughs> In a way, though, that, that it's kind of good to give a kind of sort of sense of terror because that will... <laughs> kind of keep you on your toes, isn't it? If you have the the shadow is watching. Well, look, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, please do. We uh, always love hearing from you. And, uh, you know, we're also very happy uh, to hear things that you want to complain about on the show. That's uh, 
part of the free and fair debate that this show is trying to cultivate. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can get in touch with us with your real name or some sort of absurd internet name. Uh, and you can do that by emailing psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk. Uh, we would also love to hear your voices. So why not send us a voice note on WhatsApp? Our number is 07514644572. Internationally, that's plus four four. 7514-644-572. And yeah, if we do use something that sounds like a weird term, please pull us up on it really specifically because I think it's very good for people in the United Kingdom to realise how weird our <laughs> system of government sounds. Um, if you're new to the show, remember to hit follow on your app and you'll get a new episode every week. Just another reminder that the British Podcast Awards has a public vote. It's called The Listener's Choice. And if you'd like to vote for us, we would really, really like it. Also, I just quite like the idea of, you know, the people's vote. Yeah. I think that should go to us. Yeah. I think that would be very nice. Um, <laughs> and if you agree, then go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting and again anyone can vote it takes literally seconds so it's britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting right I'm going to eat some plums Save the UK is a reduced listing production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop. Additional production assistance was from Annie Keatsthorpe. Video editing was by David Kaplowitz and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer David Dargahi. The executive producers are Louise Cotton, Dan Jackson, Madeline Herringer and Michael Martinez. Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter and TikTok where we're at Pod Save the UK or on Instagram through the Crooked Media channel. And hit subscribe for new shows every Thursday on Spotify, Amazon, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Packages by Expedia. You were made to be rechargeable. We were made to package flights, hotels, and hammocks for less. Expedia. Made to travel. 